The man looked upon the ruins of the former citadel, Jerusalem, land of his fathers and their fathers before them. For four hundred years his people had called it their capital city. But now the walls were broken down, the gates were burned and the guard towers left unattended. He had wept when he first heard about the state of the city, but now as he rode his horse around its perimeter, a fire was kindled in his heart and mind. This wall needed to be rebuilt. The city needed to be fortified, and his people needed someone to help them reclaim their dignity. He clicked his heels against the steed and disappeared down the hill towards his camp to make plans for the mission before him. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. Welcome to our mini-pod series. In each episode, we'll share a short story of a key virtue and the man who exemplified it. Welcome to episode 6, The Responsiveness of Nehemiah, hosted by me, Jamie Adams. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is responsiveness. Responsiveness is the quality of reacting to a need or calling and meeting it with a positive, deliberate action. Responsiveness is something every man needs in his arsenal. It is fundamental in marriage, parenting, in the workplace, and especially in times of adversity. The responsive man gives himself to a task while refusing to allow danger or discomfort to prevent him from doing what is required. One of history's most vivid examples of responsiveness is the biblical figure of Nehemiah. In this episode, we'll discover how his answer to a calling helped arouse his people out of shame and exile, and how his actions paved the way for historical events that still impact us to this very day. The nation of Israel and the Jewish people have had a long, turbulent history. From their bondage in Egypt, to their wandering in the wilderness, to their struggles to find a foothold in the Promised Land, their story is one of struggle, toil, failure, repentance, and redemption. There is debate among biblical scholars as to when exactly the Jews took hold of Jerusalem as their capital but most agree that it was King David who conquered the city in 1004 BC from the Jebusites. David made Jerusalem his kingdom's capital and the nation prospered under his rule. His son Solomon reigned after David's death and built the first temple in the city and extended the fortified wall around the city perimeter to encompass 37 acres. After Solomon's death in 930 BC, Israel split into two separate kingdoms, the Kingdom of Israel in the north 
and the Kingdom of Judah in the south, where Jerusalem lay. Over the next century, the two kingdoms would be constantly attacked by the Assyrians. Jerusalem's fortifications were improved during the reign of Hezekiah, but in 720 BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, was conquered by the Assyrian invaders, and the ten tribes from the north were exiled from the land. The southern kingdom, Judah, held out for another century, but in 586 BC, its time finally came. The people of Judah had long departed from their covenant with God, and were stuck firmly in idolatry and all kinds of immorality. Judgment came swiftly under the might of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. The assault on Jerusalem was merciless, and the city and temple were both destroyed. Most of the Jews in Judah were exiled. Many were taken as slaves to Babylon. A remnant returned after Babylon was conquered by Cyrus the Great of Persia in 539 BC, and the temple was rebuilt some 20 years later. Finally, under the Persian king Darius, Ezra the scribe led another group of exiles back to their homeland and reinstituted Jewish worship of Yahweh and adherence to the law of Moses. But the city remained undefended and its people vulnerable to future attack. The year is 444 BC. King Artaxerxes rules over the massive Achaemenid Empire, which stretches from modern-day Greece in the west to Afghanistan in the east, and from Armenia in the north to Egypt in the south. A Jewish man stands stirring over the city of Susa, modern-day southwestern Iran. He is cupbearer to the king himself, a very prestigious position for a Jewish exile. But as he gazes over the magnificent city, he thinks not of its beauty, but of his own homeland, 900 miles to the west. His brother had visited Jerusalem with the other exiles, and had just returned to Susa with news. The city was in ruins. As the man ponders the state of his homeland, he buries his face in his hands and weeps. The man's name is Nehemiah, and he decides that this grief he feels demands action. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He seizes the first opportunity to petition the king for help and what he knows he must do. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, may you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. King Artaxerxes agrees, and even agrees to Nehemiah's request for letters requesting safe passage from Susa to Jerusalem, and also a letter to procure timber for the task of rebuilding the city gates. And so Nehemiah sets off towards Judah with a fervent conviction that his mission is one of momentous importance and that it is a charge from God himself. Upon his arrival, Nehemiah surveys the wall surrounding the city. Though he came with a group of men, he does this alone in order to keep what God has put on his heart a secret until his plan is fully defined. He rides his horse around the perimeter of the ruined wall, making observations on its state of disrepair and calculating how many men and how much material will be needed to complete the task. After this, he brings this idea of rebuilding the wall to the Jewish elders, priests and nobles. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, 
with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. The men agree and plans are made to rebuild the wall. But not long into the preparations, Nehemiah meets the first resistance to his mission. Sanballat the Horite, Tobiah the Ammonite, and Jessam the Arab hear of the plan, and they set about to hamstring Nehemiah at every available opportunity. They claim in a mocking tone that Nehemiah is fomenting a Jewish rebellion against the king, but he responds, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, or right, or claim in Jerusalem. This quiets the three men for the moment, and Nehemiah and his men get to work. Starting with the Sheep Gate at the north of the city, Jews from all walks of life rebuild and repair the wall in a counterclockwise direction. Knowing that each man will do his best work on the wall that protects his own home, Nehemiah instructs many to repair the wall adjacent to their own places of residence. Here we see one of Nehemiah's qualities that led to the success of the project, his ability to delegate. Anyone can put themselves to a task, but it takes a true leader to find the right people for the job and then delegate different responsibilities to each of them, taking into account their skills, motivation, and understanding of the project's scope. The building was being completed at an incredible rate, and morale was high amongst the workers. Seeing this, Sambalat and Tobiah seek to chastise Nehemiah and the others by taunting and belittling them. What they are building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. But the men continue to build, and the wall is joined together at half its original height. This terrifies those in opposition to the project. Up until now, they have seen this as little more than a bit of comedy for them to poke and jab at. But as the wall is joined once more, the detractors are made to stand up and take notice. They know now that their jeering has done nothing but provide motivation on top of motivation for the builders. Now they need a new strategy to ensure the project goes no further. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites, and the Ashtonites meet to plan a move on the Jewish builders. Nehemiah hears of their plans, and he wisely positions the men at the bottom of the wall near any gaps, and arms them with the sword, the spear, and the bow. Nehemiah knows he needs to strengthen the men's resolve in the light of this adversity. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Their enemies, seeing their readiness to fight, abandon their plan for an all-out attack on the wall, and Nehemiah and the others go back to building. But they now work each with a stone in one hand and a sword in the other. Nehemiah showed his pragmatism through this approach, praying that the enemy's plans would be thwarted. But he also prepared his men for a fight. This approach proves that there is no firm wall between being proactive and seeking the Almighty to act on our behalf. Nehemiah knew that having faith was no excuse to be passive. Having withstood a threat from outsiders, 
Nehemiah is forced to now confront a threat from within. For many years the Jewish nobles had been taking advantage of their fellow Jews financially. They had been lending money, collecting interest, which was barred by Jewish law. And when the people couldn't pay, the nobles would seize their land and sometimes even take their children as slaves. Nehemiah, seeing the division this brought to the Jewish community, and the sheer injustice of it, knew he needed to act. He had been made governor of Judah, and he knew his role was not just one to oversee the rebuilding of the physical, but also to rebuild the community. Calling a special council, Nehemiah charges the nobles with the crimes they have committed against their own people, and orders them to return all land, servants, and interest previously claimed. Nehemiah's opposition is not yet finished though. Having been scared out of a direct attack, they turn to deception. Sandalat and Geshem send a letter to Nehemiah, asking him to meet at the place of their choosing, promising to do him no harm. He declines, and three more letters are sent with the same request. Sanballat then turns to threats. He sends a fifth letter, claiming that it is written among the nations, that Nehemiah is fomenting rebellion, and that he seeks to make himself king of Judah. Nehemiah, coy to the lie, simply responds, No such things have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Desperate, Sanballat and Tobiah play their final move. They bribe a man known to Nehemiah named Shemaiah, and the man ushers Nehemiah to his home. Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But Nehemiah sees right through the plot and responds. Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go. Nehemiah has just dodged the last trick up his enemy's sleeve, and on the 52nd day since the beginning of the rebuilding effort, the wall is completed. In under two months, the city wall encompassing what historians believe to be an area of about 40 acres had been repaired, some of it 15 feet thick and 40 feet high. To commemorate the occasion, Ezra the scribe sets about rebuilding the faith of the Jews in Judah. The people are gathered, and Ezra reads aloud from the Book of the Law of Moses. The sins of the people are confessed, and the Levite leaders then begin a brief history of the Jewish people to remind the Jews who they are, where they came from, and who their God really is. Keeping his word to the king, Nehemiah returns to Susa for a time, having been gone for 12 years. He then returns to Judah once more in 431 BC, where he is believed to have remained for the rest of his life. Under the leadership of Nehemiah, the Jewish people withstood intense opposition and came together to accomplish the goal of fortifying their city. But Nehemiah didn't just rebuild a wall. He and other leaders like Ezra gave them their spiritual and cultural identity back. Providence chose Nehemiah for the task, and he willingly gave himself to it for the good of his people and to serve his God. We live in a time of intense individualism, where community is neglected, national unity is elusive, and regular religious practice is scoffed at 
Nehemiah's responsiveness is an example to us that when a group of people under robust leadership come together around a common goal, revival can happen even in the most unlikely of places. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by me, Jamie Adams, and edited by Scott Einig. The details of this story were taken from the Book of Nehemiah and historical commentaries on ancient Jerusalem. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and a comment wherever you're listening. And follow us on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore man for more stories of virtue like this one. Join us next time as we take a break from mini-pods for a bonus episode, where we join our friends at a Brother's Creed for another collaboration.